I mean, it wasn't like a, this patriarchy was this sort of men lording over from their thrones, you know, directing their wives around. It was like, well, here's what has to happen. Somebody's got to keep the house from burning down and the kids from dying. And somebody's got to go kill bears and do something to bring us food. And by the way, we're all going to die when we're 30. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as always with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you fellas doing today? Great, Nick. Yep. Glad to hear. We're going to jump right into our episode today because we're not exactly sure how this is going to go. Uh, we're going to attempt to do a mailbag episode answering listener emails. And none of us really know how long we're going to take on these uh, various topics. We've planned to try to get to three different emails. We try to give ourselves about 45 minutes total per episode. So I might have to cut us off here and there. I have a stopwatch right here. Move us along at certain points. We'll see. Excuse me, Nick. I'm talking. I'm talking, Nick. Excuse yeah, me. Yeah, right. <laughs> talking. <laughs> Can I finish? Can I finish? Right to the mailbag. Here we go. Uh, hello, Stand Firm and Faith team. I'm a student who is struggling to address the problem of sexuality on my campus. I recently had a friend who came out to me, and I did not know how to respond. How should I respond to them? I don't want to affirm their choice, but at the same time, I want to show love to them. Why would it be loving to respond to my friend by clarifying that I don't affirm their lifestyle? You know, I, I think I'm, I, I'm glad that he asked the question. I also think that the, 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 the fact that many Christians are asking this question shows that we haven't done our job really of, of, a, of communicating what is at stake. Because I don't think, you know, let's say the let's say that uh, this person's friend were to come out as, um, you know, a, 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 <laughs> I'm I'm selling women on the black market uh, for sex. Now, what would love demand of of a friend in that case? Love would demand the friend says, okay, right. you need to stop that <laughs> because you're destroying yourself and you're destroying others along with yourself. So the the, the question is, what is the real? What's really at stake when we're talking about? sexual sin and we're talking about someone's personal self-destruction and that person's destruction of whoever they're with whoever they're involving themselves in uh, whether whether it be through pornography or through an actual relationship so in that lens i mean if my, if my friend comes to me and says i'm i'm engaging in self-destruction and i'm hoping to destroy someone else along the way <laughs> the only thing love can do is say wow I love you, but you need to, you know, can we, can I help you get out of this? I love you enough to be honest. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's the first place to start in all of these discussions. You're exactly right, Matt, is that we need to consider, you know, what other sin, if we're actually, you know, consider it a sin, which is a whole nother topic, could we substitute and then make a similar loving appeal? And you very quickly, as you pointed out, uh, run into some cognitive dissonance, as it were, because clearly to allow someone to persist in what we believe to be uh, self-destructive and, and God-prescribed behavior is not a Christian thing we can do. You know, I mean, I used to always say that everything can be forgiven, but we can't bless everything. Like there's a, there's a very specific and limited things that we can bless. 
Although, you know, I'm thankful I haven't yet heard the far ends of what possible things need to be forgiven, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, and so, but, you know, I think that part of the problem that this person's going to have is that if, I don't know where they're at college. I mean, if they're at like a Christian college or if, I mean, even on a Christian college, but that may make it somewhat easier if it's a place like, you know, Grove City or, or maybe just Grove City, uh, <laughs> the only place that actually has some sort of substantive statement about this. But if it's just a normal college, like the one I went to or the all went to, then, you know, it's going to increasingly be seen, as we talked about last week, with respect to uh, adoption or some sort of Christian beliefs of things, it's going to be increasingly seen as a as a sort of bigoted stance to hold, you know, that you're actually sort of akin to a racist, um, you know, like an actual racist, not a Abram Kendi racist. And so I think this is really the difficulty that we are facing. And I feel for the people who, you know, five years ago, this was a much different uh, scenario. And so, you know, when Nick and I were talking about this earlier, the, the, the sort of training for the war that you thought was coming, you know, the old joke, you never get the war that you, or not joke, but the statement, you know, you train for the war that you think you're going to have, but you get something different. Well, I think that we're now in the middle. We have people like this, like, I don't know if it's a, is it a guy or a, it's a guy? Yeah. Okay. Like he's in the middle of this fight that, you know, we can blame the church. And I think there's a lot of blame to go around, but at the same time, it's also a landscape that has changed so dramatically and so quickly that there's a lot of like on field training happening hmm. left and right, you know? And I think that the fundamental conviction can't change, you know, that's a, that's a Christian uh, distinction that we, you know, particularly in the Anglican church have, have sacrificed greatly for many have you particularly Matt, but at the same time, the, the way that we navigate this uh, midstream is, is increasingly difficult. And so my, my first, you know, sort of advice to the person would be to really consider the nature of their relationship, because if it genuinely is someone that is their friend, like that actual deep friendship that can hear contradictory ideas, you know, that you can actually speak the truth in love to, well, then, you know, you do as Paul says, you do, you gently, you know, and lovingly and courageously communicate the truth in love. But, but it's often the case that you have a quote unquote friend, like a Facebook friend or, or an acquaintance, you know, who wants to get in an argument with you or wants to expose you and, or, you know, sort of tr teach you something. And if that's the situation the guy's in, then I, you know, I don't want to say you don't answer the question, but I think, you know, be prepared for whatever you say, however gently, however um, graciously you put it, if, the, if you communicate the Christian conviction, which is that God has spoken in this area and that you need to cease and desist this activity and repent, well, so you can't, there's no matter how nicely you can say that, there's not going to be a lot of uh, positive reaction to that, I'm afraid. It seems like we've allowed the culture to define love out from under us. I wonder if one of you would like to take the opportunity to say, you know, like Journey asked, right? What is love? Foreigner. Foreigner. Gosh, foreigner. I want to know what love is. Matt Kennedy, what is love? I want to know what love is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the Christian love is, is, the, is understood in a kind of a the word agape, you, you, it is a self, the giving of the self for the good of the other. And the good is defined by God, not by the other person's preferences. So, so to love another person means you, you in some sense die um, so that the other person's good can be accomplished, which is what you know, Jesus did perfectly on the cross and, and his life, death, and resurrection. Um, so that, that's love from the Christian perspective. But that, that butts right up against the understanding of and we've, we've talked about this numerous occasions. Today, there is this sense, there's this kind of false gospel 
that you look within yourself and and you 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 dive as deep as you can you, you find your true authentic self and whatever you find down there that's that's the god created self that's the imago dei that's the that's the image of god and um and so if you find that you're attracted to another male or another female um that's god created and so that's your deepest self you live into that um and then when someone doesn't affirm that of course that's hatred they're not they're not just saying i don't agree with your decision i don't agree with your preference i don't agree with your your lifestyle they're saying i i hate you because you that's who you are that, that's what our world tells us that deepest self is you and whoever rejects that rejects you that's right and and you can't love from the secular perspective and increasing the christian the, the, the perspective of people in the church who are buying into the secular perspective since someone's self is identified with the core being that they themselves I, you know, discover, love has to affirm that. That's right. Uh, I, I just found, I'm teaching a class on, on the law uh, here, and I just ran back across uh, that Andy uh, Stanley um, article from Relevant about um, decoupling the Old New Testament from the Old. Remember that? And he has the yeah. article is, Why Do Christians Want to Post the Ten Commandments uh, and Not the Sermon on the Mount? And he talks about how, like, the Sermon on the Mount is all about love, 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 and the summary of the law. And so why are we sort of caught up in all of these, uh, what he would he would lump in, apparently, the Ten Commandments with the um, all of the cultic laws of Israel, too. And the problem with that, as we have seen, is the law is not the gospel, but the law is, um, you know, do we overthrow this law by faith? No, we uphold this law, Paul says, and that we, by faith, um, end up comporting our lives, at least in hopeful uh, ways, guided by the promise, not the threat anymore, the curse, but the promise that our lives will then be conformed to Christ. You know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And, and so how do we know what Christ wants a conformed human life to look like? Well, we look to the, the commandments. We look to, to the law, as it were, not theologically speaking and not as our salvation, but that's where we get the content. I mean, think about the second table of the law. Honor your father and your mother. You know, do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. You know, these have all sorts of very practical ramifications for how we operate our our relationships. Actually, how we love our neighbors ourselves. Because the question isn't should we love, but the question the Bible answers is how do we love? Right. And it begins grounded in the love of God to us, which is this is love, not that we love, but God loved us and gave himself as a propitiation as we talked about. So that's how he loved us. So from that basis, how do we then mercifully, graciously love our neighbor? And that's to, with all humility, seek to imitate Christ you know, to, to a certain degree, um, and pray for a heart change in ourselves and others. And I think this is, you know, basic Christianity. And the idea that um, we're going to keep running up against is that the real problem, as you pointed out, Matt, is that the accusation from a higher authority than my own subjective desires on anything is going to be met with initially some confusion, then some some consternation, and finally anger and rejection. And that's what, and it doesn't matter. I mean, insert, you know, issue here. Like, well, I know the Bible says cohabitation, um, you know, sexual intimacy before marriage is to be prohibited, but, you know, I mean, really what's the big deal and i really you know love her you know it's like well you know i don't know how to that's not an argument that we can really that's not a discussion that we can have if the base if, if your if your idea and the authority of scripture are seen as uh contemporary uh um, 
um, as written, should seek to conform ourselves to what he has said versus what we just sort of come up with on our own because how's that working for you you know <laughs> that's that's actually technically the depiction of god's wrath like do what you want you know what paul says you know have your way yeah just sure you want to see how that works like see how your relationships work out see how your career uh ends up you know when you just are the take your inheritance life. and go off that's right and you're a protagoras right you know you're the man is a measure of all things you know so Good luck with that one. So, but I need going back full forward, Matt, how would you, like if they came to your church, like what would you, what, what would be like an actual practical um, technique or, or a conversation starter or some, some sort of advice that you would give them? We, we didn't affirm this person, but uh, this person's um, direction, but we did say very clearly, we love you. We've known you for years. Um, we're not surprised that you have sinful predispositions yes. toward things because we, because we all do. Uh, and we're not shocked. Um, yeah, or so, disgusted or fr- frightened. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if I, if I were to like, divulge all the things that go on in my art, then you'd be disgusted too. So I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. It doesn't matter. Really, it's just it's a pastoral assuring the person of love, assuring the person of forgiveness, Amen. Um, and yet upholding, look, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, and we have to uphold this because we love you. Amen. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what, you know, the ultimate expression of the law being upheld, uh, you know, um, meaning the wages of sin is death, was Christ on the cross for us. I mean, this is where he took our sin, and so that's how <laughs> so destructive it is, and yet we can stand here as the should-be condemned sinners uh, expressing that mercy to other sinners. And, you know, in my experience with this, I've had some really um, uh, hard conversations around the world uh, with people who, some of whom have been married, you know, legally well before they were in the U S and, you know, I'm through tears, you know, through tears sort of expressing like my hands are tied about this conviction. You know, it's not that we haven't had clear teaching from the God that I have, um, that I believe in who has, you know, carried me thus far and has not misled me. And so this is part of how he has, has spoken. And, you know, I, like you said, you have all of the caveats and, you know, in some cases it was over a meal at our own house. And so clearly there was a, it was a relationship there. And, you know, I wouldn't say that we have developed a deeper friendship on the other side of that conversation, but it did not end in, you know, tables turning and, and, you know, sort of let's take this out with the dueling pistols or whatever. And I'm grateful for that because, you know, as I've told bishops before in part, I said, you know, I think, and we've talked about this before, that, that there's something so fundamental about these ordered desires and disordered desires, as it were, because of sin, that if we, I think when we let go of an idea that God has actually designed, you know, anatomically, physically, um, uh, emotionally, you know, just go down the list, men and women in a complementary sexual, at the very least, way for our good and for our, you know, for our pleasure, for that matter. When we let go of that, um, I think we have let go, we, let, we have let go of something very powerful about, about what God has said to the world. Because, you know, as I said before, like when you believe in a God that speaks about all sorts of things with great clarity, except for how men and women should be related, like what's the purpose of our bodies? Like what are, you know, what are we supposed to do with these fundamental inescapable urges and where should we direct them? Well, then you wonder whether that God actually is the, is really the, the main God, you know, is, can I talk to your supervisor God maybe? Cause uh, <laughs> I seem to be a canon that is loosely moored to my moorings. And I really am finding this to be quite a destructive place to live. And thankfully he's spoken, you know, thankfully he has not left us without a God. Um, and I'm also grateful that he has spoken obviously his, through the law, 
but but uh, but also not the final word through the law through the gospel so that we can in fact preach um to however far off people are that there's no there's no sin too great for uh, the blood of christ to cover well, I've shown myself to be a completely spineless <laughs> ringmaster here. That was about three or four times longer than I had allocated. So what I'm going to do is call an audible now and skip over our long second email. Probably we'll do that on a future episode. I think it could probably tolerate a whole episode of its own and just ask a, the third email question, which I have for you, which I think will take up the balance of our time. Uh, why not settle the abortion issue with a nationwide referendum vote. Can abortion be settled by majority vote? Um, I mean, I guess uh, we're just kind of two questions there. I mean, I, I suppose, can it? Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose. You, <laughs> right. you, you we can, can have a vote, yes. We can, uh, we could have a vote. Would that, would that have any kind of moral weight? Well, it depends on the outcome. If, if, the, if the majority of the people in this nation would choose to allow a woman or a man force a woman, depending on the situation, whatever it is, uh, to murder her baby, then it would be a morally reprehensible um, outcome. Even and if it was 600 million to zero. Yeah, yeah. yeah Hitler was, was duly elected. Yeah. I mean, that was, this, was a, this was not a, a thing, you know, so majority rule is not always a good, or ever, or always, it's not always a good thing. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think there was a, I forgot who, some, some congressperson uh, tweeted that we don't want pure democracy. And, and he, he was just, this congressperson was overwhelmed with, what do you mean we don't want democracy? And the people were retweeting him, copy tweeting him, just we don't want pure democracy. You don't want you don't want a situation where we have a straight up majority rule because when that happens, the minority is slaughtered. You're gonna you're gonna find yeah. you're gonna find all kinds of, of tyrannies unleashed. That's why we have a republic. That's why you know, people have you know parliamentary systems. That's why we don't have uh, straight up. Uh, majority votes on various things. That's why we don't have. That's why I hope we never have. We ever do away with the with the electoral, electoral college, right? Yeah, because because in in that case, minorities will be squashed. Um, and as we all we all should know as believers, that um, the vast majority, <laughs> when human beings get together and all agree on something in a fallen world. It's usually, usually like, let's build a tower to the heavens. Yeah, Barabbas. That's right. <laughs> Barabbas, and, that's great. Well, you got to remember, too, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I guess I'm a well, armchair uh, political scientist, but, you know, at the founding of our country, you know, they had already seen, first they had, they had known tyranny, or they considered tyranny through the monarchy, you know, then they had seen the French Revolution try to initially um, incorporate the monarchy in sort of a, you know, kind of what they did a constitutional monarchy in, in England, um, and that had, you know, obviously um, did not work. And then so but they had this incredible I mean, it's really inspiring if you really if you start studying it, this vision, this sort of federalist vision, which I mean, in the Federalist Papers of, of this sort of these balances, these checks and balances with the executive judiciary and legislative and the the this way that it worked out, even within the states and the relative, you know, the, the bicameral system and the representative, the House of Representative, which was sort of the, the will of the people, you know, the, the people's house, because it's 
turn o- turns over fast and is proportionally representative. So California has, you know, 10 times what Rhode Island or 20 times, I don't know what the case is, of number of representatives. But then you had the Senate, which was to exactly protect the you know, the interests of the smaller states and so in large of the big ones. Cause if you, I mean, most people, you know, flyover states, not a joke, you know, I mean, there are people that have to stop in Iowa and they're like, why did, you know, uh, you know, there are movies about that, about the, you know, the movie star whose plane runs out of gas and, and ends up in, in Des Moines or something. And then, you know, has an epiphany and falls in love with the waitress. And anyway, uh, but the point is that all of that is part of protecting us from the tyranny of the, of the majority uh, in, a, in a certain, uh, in a certain sense. But I don't, but I don't think that's exactly what they're asking in this question. I think that the, the question could be considered because I mean, there are a lot of good reasons why we don't just simply have a referendum, you know, direct popular democracy, but maybe the question is, is getting to the idea of will laws actually affect abortion in any um, meaningful way or or it should be a political question at all I don't know I mean because I think you know, I could keep talking about how how difficult or how unwise uh, getting rid of our sort of system would be but but why what would be the point of a referendum on abortion like I mean if we said it was right you know, and it became the law of the land and it was the most uh, sort of obvious thing that everyone did all the time. I mean, I would consider leaving the country, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. it would be not be a place I would want to live. Yeah. But what's actually interesting about the referendum is if you look at the actual duly elected representatives in various states and the, the actual legal, uh, the laws that have been put into place by elected officials, well, the overwhelming majority of many of the states seems to at the very least be put some limits on abortion, if not, um, you know, get rid of it entirely in some cases, uh, with few exceptions, notably, you know, New York and California and these places. But I think that if you, um, so, you know, maybe if we did a popular referendum, I, I don't think I'd be surprised to see that there'd be a large number of people who wouldn't, who would support some sort of limits, you know, late term, whatever you want to call it, partial birth. But, um, but that's a secondary question to the primary one, maybe, which is that do laws help or hurt in these situations at all? Yeah, and I think that if you play, replace abortion with any other kind of issue, almost like we did with your earlier question, things become a lot clearer. So uh, let's say we had a, a pro-rape party. You know? I like <laughs> that is so, you did lynching on preventing grace every time. It's a, it is a new awful thing. Like, let's say we have. <laughs> well, because, you know, well, if you put it in those terms. It's a good pedagogical terms, technique. Right? Yeah, it is. No, I mean, sure. there's, leave no, there's no nuance in these, these arguments. Well, because we're talking about tearing a baby limb from limb inside its mother's womb. We're talking about the, 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 torturous murder of a, ch- of a child so i mean i think rape is actually a, a pretty a pretty moderate <laughs> comparison to that so so yeah let's say we have a we have a pro rape party we would love to legalize rape and let let rape just be something that you can do you know if you're stronger you can take a, a weaker person and and have your way with them now would it now let's let's say let's just to say that because of the other policies of the pro-rape party that studies have shown that if this party is elected rapes would actually go down so would you so in that case would it be something that we would want to do would we want to would we want to have a, a nation that had a rape as a legal option if in fact making it legal would reduce it and my p- position would be that's that's morally incoherent and absurd no this is not a pragmatic question 
This okay. is a this is a question of what what the actual purpose of law is, which is to which is to govern um, the the behavior of human beings, and and so even if the policies of a pro rape party would end in less rape, we would still be we would still be a morally inexcusable choice to vote for such a party. The argument I've heard from time to time, which actually makes this referendum idea at least mildly interesting, is that the number of abortions wouldn't in fact change whether it was legal or illegal. They would just be incredibly unsafe and unsanitary and done in El Salvador if it was illegal here. And so in fact, um, not that it would change the number, but the, the procedure is safer for all involved if it's legal. I think that's also we have like a, a morally bankrupt argument. That's just one that I've heard. No, I've heard that too. I mean, should we have a rape house then? Where we like, we pass out condoms? I mean, bring your yeah, grab that's one. Called, that's called Burning Man. Um, <laughs> that's that's so. uh, that's, uh, or Coachella, something like that. I don't know. They tell me. No, the problem with this though. So let's say, I mean, just so we're talking, let's say Roe versus Wade is overturned and it goes back to the state. So then states will have to force and elect their representatives to legislate and make laws, um, either you know, least loosening the restrictions on abortion in places like Louisiana and um, Texas, or or reining them in in places like New York and California. And if the Supreme Court had already acknowledged that that was legal. And, and constitutional so to do, well, then people would be faced with a choice as they often are. You know, I want to live in a state that has this sort of, you know, if you lived in California and you were anti-abortion, you could choose to stay and you could work, you know, to get your people elected and turn overturn those laws. You know, that's what you work. If you lived in Louisiana and you were a diehard abortion proponent, then you could work in there all the while the conversation would continue to go and the medical technology will continue to increase. And the, the actual like, you know, moment of conception is actually caught on film now, you know, and you can see the, the time at which the unique DNA is fused together and the energy and the life actually um, is, is, you know, there, there's like a spark. I mean, it's unbelievable, you know? And so that would happen simultaneously with a, I would like to see double down platform of adoption, foster care, you know, um, help. Like we spend so much money um, on people taking care of them, you know, particularly people who are in dire straits. It's like we could, we can, we can set up um, edifices and um, structures whereby the the default idea when you become pregnant is not, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? It's that, well, you know, even though I don't really want to raise this child, somebody will, I know, and let's get into that pipeline. And that would, that's what I would love to see because, you know, Matt, like we were involved with, I mean, I've said it before, the, the adoption agency that I'm going through down in Texas uh, is more expensive than it should be, but it's, le it's more expensive than normal in part or not in part, but precisely because they see their mission as every single woman that goes through our program, that gets the GED, that gets a, a scholarship help, that gets medical care, that gets psychological counseling, gets job help, is a walking preacher against abortion. Because, yeah. you know, we stay in touch with them. We, we keep showing them the baby pictures and they know, look, I couldn't take care of it. And I've, you know, I'm gonna have no interest. You know, there's almost 99% no interest in taking the back of the child, even if they wanted to. 
but there's a deep sense, a huge new life ahead of them where they don't have this crushing question, particularly when they have another child, you know, and then, and then by that point, you know, I'm fully expecting John to meet his biological parents at some day, you know, I mean, it's a perfectly normal desire to have, and there's no shame involved in that. And I'm not afraid that, you know, like on Golden Pond or something is going to run to them and not to me or something. <laughs> and so, you know, the problem I have with the question of abortion is that it's all about the question of rights on one side, and it's a question about murder on the other, which are real things. But fundamentally, you know, there are people, it's, it's, a, it's a pastoral question for Christians, you know, because it's, it's not an unforgivable sin. You know, as people have thrown back at me as recently as like on Facebook posts, you know, Paul was a murderer. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, of course, like this is, no one is, no one is arguing that this can't be forgiven, but, you know, to live with a forgiveness, a forgiven sin is still to have, bear that scar this side of heaven. And that's quite a wound. And quite yeah. a scar. And it's not just for the woman, it's for the man. And so when you start dehumanizing the person in the womb, well, then don't be surprised, as Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop pointed out in their book, Whatever Happens to the Human Race, that we start dehumanizing people outside the womb. And all of a sudden, we have an entire generation, and we've talked about of people who walk around as the uh, capricious will of their non-married parents. <laughs> you know, that's like describes 70% of the humanity. And guess what? That makes you very angry, very cynical and ready to, uh, to rage. And, you know, that's where we are. And so I think, you know, whether we voted or not, the question of majority voting on morality is, 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 has been proven to be a really bad uh, decision uh, long term. But then again, what we're running up against is the, is the limits or, or at least the, the challenges of a genuinely pluralistic representative democracy. Who was I listening to recently? But they were trying to explain, uh, they were pointing to Norway as being this great, did I mention this before, this great model of, you know, calm uh, solemnity and sort of, and they were saying, well, you know, that's true, but Norway is relatively small and rather homogenous. You know, we have 400, frozen. Well, it's like we have 400 million people and increasingly there's, these are people who either deny external revelation or if they have an external revelation, they believe it comes from something else other than the Bible. <laughs> and, you know, when you begin to make these fundamental moral claims, which transcend my subjective ideas about right or wrong, well then, you know, you're going to run into the great question of says who and I think that's where we have to be more articulate about the good, you know, what called the general equity of God's law, like the good design for human flourishing, as the reformed people say, um, that transcends whether or not you're a Christian, you know, like you don't, well, I'm not expecting you to become a Christian. And then that's why you shouldn't have an abortion. It's like, here's why the good arguments about, about what I believe is good from God, but we could just argue you know, the, the practical, I mean, you know, who did this the best or one of a good attempts to this was uh, Robert George's book on marriage, uh, a natural law defense. And they tried to argue outside of external revelation, just from a, you know, sort of practical sense, all of the reasons why we should prioritize male, female uh, marriage. I mean, it's, it's deficient to some, but at least it's, it's in my, have, in the ones that I've read, the best um, attempt at trying to sort of get this into the public ear that's not just, well, that's what God said, because if you say, well, I don't believe what God said, you still have to legislate. So, and it's going to be difficult. I mean, it's, there's no, there's no two ways about it um, because what is clearly true about God can be seen um, both in the mountains and the moon and in the embryo. 
And yet uh, we actively suppress that truth because the worship of ourselves is more powerful than the worship of a God that we are at enmity with until we are slain by him um, and raised to new life. And so, you know, that's, it's going to be a tough sell. It's a tough sell for um, Jesus because they chose Barabbas, but um, thankfully he came back and, you know, who knows where Barabbas is. (laughs) Well, we do have a couple of minutes left here. Uh, We have a long, thoughtful email response to our episode about the nuclear family. That was episode 16, if you'd like to go back and listen. The whole thing is too long to read here and um, has too many questions within it for us to address in this episode. But we did want to take a shot at one or two of them. Um, This reader, this listener, excuse me, um, wanted us to clarify what we meant when we talked about how only a few people are called to celibacy and that most people should be looking to get married. And the question is, how can somebody tell if they're called to celibacy? What, what does a call to celibacy really entail? So I guess in very plain terms, if you're, if you're single now, if you're, not, if you're not married, then you're at this point anyway in your life called the celibacy now. Uh, whether or not that's going to go on in the future, only God knows. I know there's some people who say, and there's a, there's a lot of debate about this. I'm not sure where, where, exactly where I come down. But there's a lot of people who say that if you have this, like, this mystical gift of celibacy that you know, you're not going to want to have sex with lots of people. Um, you're not going to have the, the, the lust, the, the sex drive that others do. And, and, and I have met people who don't have the kind of drive toward sexual activity that, you know, character, characterizes most adolescents. You know, they're, they're just kind of, they're less, they're less desirous of it. And, and maybe that, maybe that's the kind of person who, who would be more prone to maybe the gifts or quote unquote gift of celibacy. Um, but I, I tend to think, you know, I think it's, it's, that involves too much navel gazing. I, th- I almost think that really the question you'd ask yourself is, am I, am, I, am I single now? Yes. Okay. Well, then you're right now you're called to celibacy. Do you want, do you want to have a relationship with somebody that involves sex? Yes, you do. Okay. Well, right. pursue that, <laughs> um, not sex, pursue the relationship <laughs> in a marriage that would then, that would then also involve the, the, the expression of the love that you have with that person um, in sexual and in a sexual intercourse. But um, so I think that there's, there's a little bit, I, I understand I'm, I'm not single. I remember when I was single, there's a lot of, you're just, you're just torn up by all kinds of passions and all kinds of desires and all kinds of questions about how that is playing with your faith. Um, but if you're not married, you're called to celebrate right now. If you want to get, if you, if you feel like you are, I think the example we used in the last podcast is if you're watching porn every day, I would say that's, that's pretty clear that, you know, you need to get married. <laughs> you need to find How about your every third day. I'm asking for every third. Okay, okay, right. <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you are, if you're, if you're burning up, right. With yeah. passion and, I mean, and desire, then you clean yourself up, you know, dress nicely. If you're talking to men basically here. I know women do that by nature. If you're a guy, you know, you know, get out of your mom's basement, dress up, <laughs> go, go, go to, uh, go to church, be a nice girl, take her out to lunch, you know, figure this thing out. Um, uh, so, so I guess I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Jay, do you think there's any like special 
No, I mean, I agree with you. I think that there's, I mean, I think I could see where the confusion could have come in because I, I do think that there, although I, to be fair, I've never actually met anyone, but I think that there are some people who seem, who, who could be called to um, just have a sort of disinterested sex drive, you know, you know, maybe they're into, they, they have a, the, well, let's just put it this way, like you, the way you defined it, that they're not unhappily um, chased, you know, so, so I think that's how you could say someone called called to celibacy. Clearly, but Christians who are not married are called to celibacy, and there's a certain self-sacrifice in that, you know, there's a real discipline and a real, and I think we need to be sensitive to that, and I'm certainly sensitive, but I'm not so sensitive that I want to then stop the trajectory of single people lo- looking for um, an end to this unhappy chastity, you know, and so I think that's where I've gotten into some conversations with people, because there's some some new, and we talked about before, some new kind of thing that, that there's this sort of blessing of lifetime or at least long-term celibacy. And I think that, you know, there's a certain pastoral reality that actually you want to take care of people. I mean, my, I've said my sister listens to this and she knows, you know, she lived with us for a couple of years um, and unmarried, unhappily unmarried. And, um, and, you know, that's a very painful thing to walk through with someone. She's now happily married us three children. And so we're, we're grateful for, for her, for the Lord's provision in that. But, um, you know, at no point during that time, as I pointed out, would she have expected me to say, well, you're burning. So just go out and, you know, go out on the town and, and see what you know, I'll leave the light on for you, you know, when you come back. And, and that's because as a Christian, she had been called at that point to celibacy. So I think there's a couple of, um, you know, problems here, though, is that practically speaking, we look at the decline in marriage rates are sort of inversely proportional to the rise in sort of sexual promiscuity. And it's unsurprising because one of the great goods of marriage uh, was a, as it were, safe and emotionally secure place to actually exercise these powerful, intimate desires. And if you're able to do that outside of marriage with basically impunity um, and, and almost no social stigma nowadays, well, it's unsurprising, you know, the church is full of sinners. Um, and so it's unsurprising that a lot of people who are hiding behind the the celibacy card are not actually celibate, <laughs> but they're, and they're active in the church. And I want to, um, to encourage them to the extent that, that we can to trust God in this area, you know, to trust, to trust God that, that it's better, it, man, it's not good for man to be alone. And that when you have these desires that are unmet or are unmet in the way that God has ordered them, well, then, you know, it's worth the search and the prayerful concern and collaboration with ministers. You know, I mean, this is where I'd love to see people really actively say, you know what I like, I'd like to help you to help me um, prayerfully find, you know, someone that I can, I can work, walk through this life together with, you know, I mean, that would be a wonderful gift. In fact, you kind of do that ad hoc anyway, you know, whenever I meet people that are, that are in the church that are single and younger than I am. And I'm always, you know, sort of jokingly or not jokingly, like inviting them over to dinner, you know, with, with various people and sort of trying to play a version of matchmaker, you know, from, um, from filling on the roof, you know, yeah. matchmaker. <laughs> but, um, so I don't know. I mean, I've, look, I think that it's an incredibly, I, I got married young, basically as soon as I could, I had to wait for Liza to graduate because I was free to marry her when in college, but her dad said that I would then have to pick up the, her college tuition. So if that was, <laughs> that was an impossibility. So uh, I waited and, um, but, you know, but so I, I speak, I mean, you know, from a certain point of not having had to live a life as a Christian man very long, very single, certainly not in the culture within which people do now. And I have a lot of sympathy for for the people who are trying to navigate this. And my heart goes out, no question. That's a great point. I think, you know, 
in throughout human history, I think we mentioned this the last time we talked about it. Maybe this, and this actually leads to one of the questions I think this person asks. But throughout history, the context was you become sexually mature. You know, a girl turns thirteen or, or somewhat you know, fourteen, whatever age that is, and a man becomes sexually mature. They're married. <laughs> you get married very young, and you have lots of kids. And so there's the question of fornication really isn't out there because as soon as you're sexually mature, you're married. Um, and, and so we're living right now in, our, in the Western society in a, in, a, in a context that human beings haven't lived in. Yes. And it's, of course, it's very difficult. And we're, and we're also, on top of that, bombarded with pornography and, and all kinds of sexual messages in the media and people around us who are having sex. So, I, you know, we're flesh. And so, yeah. I, and so I, my heart goes out to the single 20-something, 30-something that shouldn't be where you are because our society is just so shaped unnaturally around the human person that it puts us in these situations um, where, you know, I remember asking, fielding a question from a parishioner about this, who said, well, I don't, I, I don't go in the Old Testament. When I go to the Old Testament, I don't see too many laws against fornication. And, you know, well, there are, I should, there are some, but, but the cultural context was such that it, was, it would be really hard because as soon as you're sexually mature, you're married. You're never, right. There's not really a lot of time for you to go out there and, and fornicate. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, we really are. I mean, Mary Eberstadt, for anyone listening, um, has written a number of books on kind of the, the confusion of the modern world in the past century or so. And, um, you know, we really are, it's like we talked about in the beginning, we are, we are mid-battle mid um, trying to equip and, you know, equip the saints for the work of ministry in a way that would be utterly foreign to almost um, every other Christian minister that has come before, you know, 1880 or whenever the case is with respect to individual, you know, some good ways. You know, we have a lot, people have a lot more freedoms, a lot more mobility. You know, we don't have serfs. You know, most people, Jordan Peterson laughs. It's like before 1895, his life was basically brutal, harsh and miserable. So he's like, now we have running water, you know. But, um, but you know, particularly with respect to this question, because the, and I think this is just what we're trying to do. The the givens of life that used to force all of these um, these uh, constraints on people, children and, and, you know, protection, you know, you had a, I mean, it wasn't like a, this patriarchy was this sort of men lording over from their thrones, you know, directing their wives around. It was like, well, here's what has to happen. Somebody's got to keep the house from burning down and the kids from dying. And somebody's got to go kill bears and do something to bring us food. And you're like, so who, who wants to do that? You know, I mean, that's the basically, and, and by the way, we're all going to die when we're 30, you know, it's like, <laughs> and so now we've got this new world. And so I think, you know, what the best thing we can do is, is witness, you know, um, to the hope that we have within us. You know, I think married Christian people can witness to unmarried people that this is, despite what you may hear, it's not game over. You know, it's not a archaic patriarchal, uh, you know, domestic servitude, uh, slavery, as some people have said it. It's a joy and it's a gift from God and it's something beautiful, you know, so, and then therefore children, you know, like children are not to be afraid. Don't be afraid of having them, have them young and, and you know, the younger, more energy you have you know i mean this is how we and then of course we mourn with those for whom these desires are real and yet not not uh met and that is something that we can be very sensitive to as well both with marriage and children you know and so um that's sort of the initial brush at that question uh but i certainly have been um uh am always interested in helping people join into uh, what I've considered to be a very life-giving and um, and wonderful uh, way of being ordered to my wife and then by extension to our children. Um, and I think that's by God's good design. 
As I said, there's a lot more to that email. Um, hopefully we can uh, address some of the rest of it in future episodes. Um, <laughs> that was something. We gave it a shot <laughs> as usual. Uh, we've reached the end of our time um, with many things, including multiple other emails that we planned to address and didn't have a chance to. Um, probably the same folks who wrote emails are now going to write more emails about our feeble attempts to answer their questions. <laughs> How please, dare you? Please, yeah, right. please do um, keep the emails coming. Um, please be in touch with us, rate and review the podcast on iTunes. You can send us that email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. We do appreciate your taking the time to join us today. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we will be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 